This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our program today is co-sponsored by De Anza College and the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, along with the Institute of International Studies at UC Berkeley. Our distinguished guest today is Vicente Fox, the former president of Mexico. He is the author of Revolution of Hope, a book that is both uh, a story of his intellectual and political odyssey. Mr. President, welcome to our program. How are you, sir? Harry, thank you for inviting me to be here, and thank you for giving me the opportunity Good. for this dialogue. I look forward to it, and I hope we have a lot of fun doing it. Uh, where were you born and raised? Well, actually, I was born in Mexico City, and three days after, I was back to the ranch. My mother, a Spaniard lady, uh, when there were no hospitals, in this community. At that time, 1942, she would go to Mexico City, have us born, and then immediately <laughs> back. But at the very end, I'm born and raised in the community of San Cristobal, state of Guanajuato in Mexico. And looking back, how do you think your parents shaped your thinking about the world? Oh, a lot of impact in my education in conforming my character and my formation, starting with my grandfather, who came from uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, a very American man. Part of the family participated in the Civil War. And then he decided to migrate down south. Evangelical Protestant, very strong character, hard-working man, 32 hours a day, working and working. He didn't have time for anything else. So from him, I learned that by working hard, you have success in life. My mother from Spain, a very courageous uh, lady, she pushed me into politics because she was up to her neck with the former authoritarian government of Mexico. And when I decided to run, she says, go ahead, beat them. Beat the hell out of them. <laughs> My father, much more of a man that enjoyed life, pretty much, but he would say and repeat once and again, be whatever you want to be in your life, but be the very best. Don't do it for less. And, and you have in your genes then both diversity, but also importantly a, a, a pioneering, frontier, risk-taking uh, set of genes. Well, <laughs> uh, you know, being born on a farm, you dream a lot. I dreamed to be a cowboy, to ride horses on the mountain. I dreamed to be a pilot. I dreamed to be a businessman. So a lot of dreams in my childhood. But more than anything, uh, my childhood gave me the opportunity to share with kids, sons of the campesinos, of the poor uh, workers of the ranch, and I grew up with them until the day that they came to me and said, Vicente, we're leaving. We're going away. Why are you going away? That cannot be done. Because we don't see opportunities here. We have heard that if you go to North America, that you prosper, and you develop yourself, that you make money. And this is at the age of eight, eight-year-olds. And then they will just say goodbye to their mothers, to their dads, tears in their eyes, 
And they will start that risky venture of coming up north to looking for a better future. So it's like the American dream of the founding fathers, that at the very end is the dream of all of us in America. The dream to prosper, the dream to have a good life, the dream uh, to be uh, a good citizen. You use the phrase making the Americas, basically. That's really what you're talking about. And, and what you're saying is uh, we all want the same thing and we can probably get it best if we do it all together. That was the cry of the Europeans. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go to America. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be the dream. And let's make the America, they would say, meaning that they would conquer uh, this great continent and this great line. And so all of them came either through Ely Island into United States and then spread out to the west and everywhere here. Others came through Cuba uh, to Veracruz, Mexico. They got into our nation and they spread out. Some of them went further south. And you see a lot of Italians, a lot of Portuguese in Brazil and Argentina. So. Uh, this continent has been uh, growing so big and great because of the spirit of migration. It's a very special caste. A migrant has fire within. He moves ahead. He conquers. He takes all the risks that he can take. He knows pretty well where he's going and how he's going to get there. And this is part of the blood that I have because on my two sides... My father's side, United States, further back Europe, and further back Ireland. My mother's side, further back Spain. Uh, so I'm, I feel very comfortable with that, having that in my blood. And, and Vicente was always known as somebody who was on the move when he was growing up. Well, when you have um, blood of migrant, you move all the time, <laughs> yeah, all yeah. the time. And, but you, you also refer to your, your uh, name as uh, the, the disobedient son, or at least that was the song you liked. <laughs> Tell us about that. Oh, that was my, my father's, what he gave me that uh, nickname. And it's because when we were kids, things in the rural areas in agriculture were so difficult because of the agrarian reform. So you would own your land, your property, but all of a sudden government comes and says, I'm going to take it away from you, and I'm going to give it back to this other people that are poor. That would be a fair proposal, as long as they would pay you back for the land they're taking away from you. Mm-hmm. But they would not. They would just take it away and give it to the poor. So that's why agrarian reform never worked. But, but anyway, uh, in the case of my grandfather, he had 10,000 acres. Uh, 9,000 were taken away from him. So my father, after my grandfather had that in his mind, that it was, that your patrimony is always at risk in nations that don't respect private property. So that's why he used to tell us, be anything you want, Hmm. but never be a farmer, forget it, dedicate yourself to something else, and never get into politics. Please, he would (laughs) then... Don't get into politics because that's dishonest, uh, it's corrupt, it's, it's bad for you. Mm-hmm. So with those two uh, commandments, uh, finally I kept being a farmer, and number two, I got into <laughs> politics. So that's why he calls me disobeying son. Now, uh, your, your very strong sense of compassion in part comes from working in the fields, as, as you just described. But, but the, the other element in your life story is the educational opportunity uh, that you got. Uh, tell us a little about that, because what, what's quite compelling in your book is when you came back with that education, you didn't distance yourself from these people you would work with. You, you felt compassion for the fact that they didn't have that opportunity. Jesuit. Jesuit education that I'm so proud of, so committed with, so passionate in living by. Jesuit education. The saint, San Ignacio de Loyola, uh, lived uh, very poor in his life, although he came from a wealthy family. 
But more than anything, he will be repeating once and again, the shortcut to happiness is being for others, is doing things for others, is getting in the shoes of the other when he suffers, when he has needs. So I found that out, and it's been proven in my life that you live happy, you have joy, you have a great feeling inside when you go by this rules. Number two, he was a visionary, a real visionary. And he discovered and put it in practice these retreats. That in his time, those retreats, being with yourself in silence, would last six months. Six months in silence with yourself in a home or in the woods or in a cabin. Just to learn who you are, what in you in this life for, what is your purpose, what is what you're going to do, what is your plan. And, uh, and uh, he did that with his followers, his first six, eight followers, uh, different saints also like San Francisco Javier. When they finished this retreat or this exercise, he would call Javier and say, Javier, are you ready? Yes, I am. Go to India and talk to the government authorities in India and bring in the Catholic Church into India. San Francisco Javier never asked where India is. Never asked how do I get there. He never asked for money to travel and get there. He just followed instructions and followed his heart. And what he had discovered in those six months being within himself. Today Deepak Chopra tells us, get yourself with five minutes in silence and go and ask you questions. When you finish those five minutes, come out to the world. You have 24 hours to conquer the world. That's the gift we get from God. Every single second, minute, hour counts. And we have 24 hours every day. This recalls me of my grandfather. He knew he had 24 hours. He would work 26 hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so the, the, the disobedient son chose politics after being warned against it. it w- was the process of your entering politics uh, uh, by virtue of when, this kind of planning you're talking about? When you're in a place where there's no respect to private property, as I mentioned, when you're in a place where you have a dictatorship instead of a democratic government, when you're in a place where corruption is the name of the game, when you're in a place where either government lets you have uh, some patrimony or he kills you and forget it, like it happened in all of Latin America for the whole of the 20th century. We were in hands of dictators, military or personal, we were in hands of authoritarian governments, like the one in Mexico. Uh, and we were in hands of demagogues and populists. You just have to read the history of, uh, of the Perons in Argentina. When you have all of that, you get, you reveal. You reveal against the establishment and what is there. So uh, when I was uh, about 50 for 55 years, I said, that's enough. Mm-hmm. I had it. So a friend of mine, which was a farmer also, invited me to come to politics. And he said, the way to change this is by participating, is by fighting, is by changing things. And so uh, it took me a lot of time. I was very afraid of moving from private sector into public sector because I knew my patrimony would be at stake. I knew I would be repressed by government, but still I wanted to do it. Inspired by San Ignacio de Loyola, inspired by Martin Luther King, inspired by Lev Valesa, who defeated the communism and the Russian Empire, inspired by Nelson Mandela, who defeated the apartheid. Those are my heroes. And so I said, I'm gonna do it like them. No guns, no war, no guerrilla, no rebellion, but my word, my power within, my leadership would be with all Mexicans to change things in Mexico. 
Uh, looking at your background, one of the things that really emerges, which is a, a, something about your character that uh, uh, makes you uh, a very interesting figure in both global politics and national politics. And what I'm talking about here is you are a, a citizen of Mexico, but also a citizen of the world. And so you combine these two things without denigrating either. Talk, talk a little about that. Is that a product of the fact that you came to the United States for some of your education, or was it things you learned on the farm? Well, if I pinch my veins here, blood from Spain will come up, blood from Ireland will come up, blood from Strasbourg will come up, blood from Cincinnati, Ohio, United States will come up, blood from Mexico, an Indian grand mother that I had, so that makes a combination. But let me tell you a story about my character. Uh, there's this place, the Basque region in Spain, in part of France, the so-called Basques. They claim that paradise was in the Basque land and that they are the founders of the world, <laughs> that the life in this earth of us started right there. In Basque. So they usually are so proud of themselves, they think they even are a superior race. So in a little bit I have that. I have a very, in one side, a very strong character. I'm very demanding. Uh, once I decide something, nothing will take me out of that. If I sit in the route truck where I was selling Coca-Cola, I'm going to be president of the company in the near future. I work hard, and I got to be president of the Coca-Cola company for Mexico and Latin America. When I moved to politics, I said, I'm going to be president of Mexico. I didn't tell anybody else. And 12 years later, I was president of Mexico after being governor of my state and before I was congressman. So that's one of the characteristics of leadership, determination. You have to know pretty well where you're going and you get there. Uh, you mentioned your uh, service in the business world, and uh, I'm very curious, what, what, give us a sense of what the difference between doing business at the highest level and doing politics at the highest level. Well, the instruments and the tools that you use are exactly the same. And very unfortunately, in politics, and mostly in Latin America and Mexico, uh, politicians and government would not use uh, business tools. They would not do planning, they would not do marketing, they would not uh, do discipline and quality and anything else. That's maybe my strong advantage when I run in Mexico in politics because coming from Coca-Cola, my 15 years experience in marketing was a surprise to them, was a real surprise to the PRI. They never thought that I could go by the side and beat them uh, using a lot of these instruments uh, that you have in business. So it's, today is the same, exactly the same. The difference is that in the public world, the discipline is not there. Because usually you can survive there without doing a great job. You can just hide away, move around, and, and you're there. In business, you have to perform. You have to give results. You have to uh, render uh, accounts and results. So uh, that discipline makes the world of uh, business a very challenging world. If today, in this stage of my life, I would have to decide again uh, which way I would prefer, I love much more the private side of, uh, of, uh, of uh, doing uh, in life. Mm -hmm. in, in business, is there a, a, a greater sense of a common purpose, making money, making profit, the company doing well, whereas in politics, it's more if I'm up, you're down, if I win, you lose. Uh, uh, is, is common purpose lacking from, from political life? Unfortunately, in both K 
cases, you're right. Mm -hmm. And that's not the way it should be. Purpose in business should be creating wealth and jobs to benefit others. That's what San Ignacio would say. Purpose in politics. Machiavelli would say, uh, you gain people's respect by exercising power, by being tough. San Ignacio de Loyola says, no, that is not true. You gain respect by love. You gain respect by the way you treat your neighbor and everybody else. So yes, unfortunately things are, as you mentioned, but hopefully one day things will change. When, when you entered politics, the adversary was pre, the, the party that had ruled uh, for 70 years, and it, it was a system of corruption, decay, uh, co-optation, and, and even violence. You, in, in your book, you, you do a, a beautiful picture of, of what the adversary was like and what it meant for Mexico. Talk a little about that. I mean, why had everybody bought into the system when the cost for the common good was so so terrible? You know, uh, Mario Vargas Llosa, the great Latin American writer, he described the Mexican political model as the perfect dictatorship because it was highly disguised. You wouldn't feel that they were, you were living within a dictatorship. The outside world would not notice the fake elections, the fraud election after election. Uh, so it was pretty well disguised. And that's what uh, basically Mexico was. Number two, uh, the stick and the carrot policy. Those who behave, you get your carrot. Like today, uh, Hugo Chavez is doing to Venezuelans. He's giving them the torta or the taco to keep them under control and to uh, let them not forget about that they depend on him and that if they want to be in school, they have to vote for him and else and else. So, uh, or the stick. If you don't behave, we take away your land. If you don't behave, we don't let you make money. And else and else again. So it was very tough, this form of lying to all Mexicans. That's why my cry when I came into politics was, Mexicans, please wake up! Open your eyes and let's change this. Another aspect of, of PRI that you point out in the book, uh, which uh, really has long-term implications, is that this kind of corrupt system to survive really needs to be a closed system. It has to not be open to the world. So, so there's an inter- the perfect dictatorship can't embrace globalization because it will globalization will point to the contradictions of the system. Yes. and uh, the reality that people are actually being held down as they're paid off. It is true, and, but nothing in this life lasts forever. China will have to go through the big challenge of moving from a dictatorship that is today, no freedom in China. Uh, they will have to move up to a democracy and freedom for their own people. That will happen sooner or later. Number two, uh, yes, dictatorships are very tough to beat because of the way they lie. They present a wonderful world when it does not exist. So, uh, but there are instruments and tools what, uh, that the people take advantage of because within we all are born free. And at the very end, that's the outmost value that guides our life. And I remember reading Benjamin Franklin when he said, those who seed even a very small part of their freedom in trying to attain security, in trying to attain well-being and income, will never have either freedom or security, or well-being. So 
Freedom is something that is sacred. And that's why in Latin America we yet have uh, battles to get. Um, the Venezuela case, the Ecuador, Bolivia, Nicaragua are still in hands of those messianic leaders, these dictators that abusing from democracy, they got into power, lying to people. But now that they're in power and government, they're changing the constitution so that they can be there for life, a life term instead of a four-year or six-year term. And uh, very unfortunately, they're destroying their nations, they're destroying their economies. They survive because they have the oil. And having the oil, they have the opportunity to keep feeding people small fishes so instead of teaching people to fish and instead of educating and informing their own people. So as a, as a leader of Mexico, you were confronting at a, a really important historic time, namely bringing democracy to a country in order to prepare it to embrace globalization. And communication was really a very important part of that strategy. And the, the old guard really could use the symbols of the old order and try to turn them against you. To say you were trying to privatize the oil companies and take the wealth of the country away from the people. That you were trying to tax the people you know, into poverty when in fact you were trying to create the resources to elevate them to a new prosperity. Talk about that challenge. I mean, this is a challenge that all of your contemporaries have faced in Latin America and in the emerging economies. Well, it is, it is true, and it was difficult, a difficult challenge. On the, from the very beginning, we had to move from an authoritarian government into a democratic government, a democratic presidency. So we would have to use new cultures, new ways of doing things. Still, the public opinion, people was in the old culture, in the old paradigm. So we had to go one case at a time. So my first uh, try was to show very uh, intensely that there were not anymore a authoritarian president that we would have a democratic president. And what happened is that public opinion immediately reacted saying, this is a weak president because he's a democratic president. So I had to struggle with that. Number two, moving the economy from a narrowed, controlled state economy into an open, global, competitive economy. Again, yes, public opinion and the establishment will say, no, we better live by uh, closed borders, nationalism, it's what we're used to. So every, every single change represented a challenge. Uh, but at the very end, I think we succeeded because we ended up having uh, pretty good uh, results. Uh, we reduced poverty in those six years by uh, 33%. Uh, we reduce inflation rate from levels of 50% a year down to levels of 6 8% a year. We were able to promote education and change the contents of education. For instance, there was no teaching in values or ethics or, or, or there's so many good things that you have to teach the kids. Uh, justified by the separation between church and state, they took out in the old regime all teachings about values. So we brought them in back again. And I'm sure those will produce an effect and a good result with the years to come. Uh, so it was very challenging, but uh, we came from a very, very uh, oriented uh, economy to the inside, to open economy, very competitive, and at the very end we brought in a stability to the nation, we brought in uh, security to the future, and I think the, the cultural changes maybe were more important than the quantitative 
changes that, that happen. And, and uh, putting on your business man's hat, it, it, it's really a challenge when you have a long-term plan. You have a vision that sees the future and where the world economy is going. But politics is the short term. It's putting out fires. So, so the, the balancing act is really uh, keeping your eye on the ball for the future, but having to, to, to One way respond. to explain this uh, orientation to short-term issues uh, is like you mentioned. It would be uh, the culture. But more so, the big problem in politics is that every government, every president, every public servant tries to do what is good for him on his term. And there is no responsibility in thinking long-term. It's no long-term problem, problems that are uh, proposed. And that, that causes a lot of problems to the economy and to a nation. I think politicians should be more responsible and really think long-term and not think about the next election. When, when you were governor of the state in Mexico, George Bush was governor of Texas. And so you, you, you had dealings with each other, you worked well together, and you had real hopes for uh, dealing with the problem of uh, migration and immigration. Uh, we call it immigration uh, in the United States. And then 9-11 and then, uh, hit, uh, which, which uh, and Bush was inclined to come up with some sort of a legislation. So the, there's an awful lot of luck, fortuna, we used to say, in, in, in this game. Talk, talk a little about that, because you, you thought he could have done much better than he did with regard to U.S.-Mexican relations, but, but he really was trapped by 9-11. Well, him being a Texan like you, <laughs> yeah. he was our neighbor, and he understood, <laughs> yeah. he understood pretty well uh, the border situation. So I invited him to come and the first official visit uh, for the first time of a U.S. president uh, was down, going down to Mexico instead of Canada, which used to be. So he came in uh, to Mexico, to the ranch. We sat down for a day and a half. And the only issue that I proposed and we discussed because he accepted was migration, a migration reform. So that was the conclusion of our summit meeting. When he came back, we started working. We advanced a lot. We had everything ready to go for this uh, integrated immigration reform. And, but unfortunately, uh, that was three days before September 11th. So I came to Congress, I addressed both chambers, I met with all the legislative uh, commissions, and we were ready to go. Everybody accepted that we would have a immigration reform. Unfortunately, as I said, September 11th comes about and things totally changed, dramatically changed. And from there on, Number one priority was the war against terrorism and uh, inland security for the United States. And unfortunately, throughout the term, we couldn't come back to that bright, positive momentum we had in our relationship. Uh, this is coming back up until now with President Obama. Uh, mm. This is uh, 10 years after that we're now with the big possibility of getting through that bill in Congress, and I hope they do, because they will be, number one, the best thing and the better for this nation, because it will, number one, bring back competitiveness that this nation has lost in front of Asia, China, India. Number two, because it will bring security, uh, which the wall is not bringing. Building walls was a total mistake. I think it's a historical mistake. It's a waste of money. Walls don't serve uh, the purpose of uh, controlling migration. Uh, walls don't work. And uh, so uh, this reform will bring in ID to all those 11 million that are underground, 
that are undocumented, and then the nation will have the security that it's not having today. And finally, cohesiveness. This is a migrant society. United States has been built all along by migrants coming from Europe, from Africa, from Asia, from Latin America. Everybody here that is watching me on TV, uh, looking backwards, sooner or later, we have a migrant heritage. Everybody, except the native Indians. The rest, everybody comes from somewhere else. And that's what has given the dynamism, the power, the capacity of this nation to be so uh, big and so important. So I hope then that this reform will go through uh, and things uh, in our relationship will be much better. Why do you think uh, there is such an anomaly in the American, the U.S. discourse about migration in, in the sense that you're absolutely right. You know, we, our greatest strengths have been built by the incoming of different peoples, and, and this is often true in any rising uh, power that you know yes, really yes, becomes a yes. great cow. But but we have uh, such we lack what you have in your presentations, namely a real empathy for the people who migrate and why they migrate. Why do we? Do you have any uh, sense of what it is about our discourse that that doesn't allow for? a real understanding of the truth? I have it very clear. This, what you described, was not the situation before September 11th. What brought about September 11th? Number one, sadness. We're all sad of what happened. That day should never repeat again. But number two, it brought fear. Those of us that come from outside of this nation, especially right after September 11th, we felt there was fear, intense fear, in, in the whole of the United States. And fear is not a good advisor. Fear takes you to isolate. Fear takes you to build walls in trying to protect you, like the Chinese did with the Chinese wall to protect against their enemies. Like the wall that the communists built in Berlin, fear that freedom will come to their land. Walls don't work, and wall has not worked here in this nation. So fear has been the dominant factor that is being abused by the xenophobics, like in New Mexico, those aggressive, minute men. Uh, the guys who discriminate, all of a the sudden they start discriminating against Latins and Hispanics. Uh, and so, uh, but the main factor is fear. Uh, with time, it has been decreasing. It's, it's incredible that this nation will uh, confundir, I don't know how you say confundir in English, but uh, a terrorist with a migrant. It's totally separate. Confused, thing. confused, yeah. Confused. A migrant is a, a human being that is only looking for doing better for him and his family. Uh, most Hispanics and Mexicans here are very loyal to this nation. They work hard all day. They produce. They make this economy competitive. They build your homes here. They build your highways. They nurse your elderly. They're good people. And, uh, but they were confused with terrorists. And uh, so hopefully this is over. This is history. Now we have to look to the future. And uh, by uh, this reform, we're going to have the capacity to be not only good neighbors, to be not only good partners, but to be the most competitive, strongest region in the world, which North America is and will keep being. The other problem between our two countries is drugs. And, and here again, the American discourse seems to blind us to all the elements of the problem. And so, uh, and, and in fact, you spoke of 9-11, one has the sense that this, everything becomes a security issue and that uh, trying to enforce drugs laws that 
that we have here that may not match the standards of other countries in the world in the sense they're, they're so harsh, uh, uh, and we are the market for the drugs, uh, creates a situation where uh, we're coming up with all sorts of solutions that don't address the problem. Uh, yeah, the thing is, again, confusion. Nobody speaks about uh, the real uh, or the reality that is behind uh, violence in Mexico. At the very end, uh, Mexico just happens to be in between the huge consumer market here in the United States and the producing nations of drugs down south. Because in Mexico, we don't produce drugs, very little, and we don't consume drugs, very seldom, and very few people. And still, we have the problem. We just happen to be in between. And in a way, uh, this nation very comfortably has said, we don't want drugs here for our kids in the United States. So they say, you Mexicans hold them there. You stop the drug in your territory. Uh, this is the message we get. And the question I ask myself is, what happens when the drug crosses the border? And it's spread out all of the United States. That drug goes up to the Chicago market, to New York, to Washington, to Seattle, to San Francisco, everywhere in the United States. And where is the CIA? And where is the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency? Mm -hmm. And where are the U.S. authorities and the U.S. police? When this nation uh, prohibits the consumption of drugs, when this nation criminalizes and brings punishment because it's a crime to consume, it does, doesn't do its job. So uh, the problem has to be solved here. Either way, to enforce the law and really make sure that drug doesn't flow around the whole of the territory and that those 60 million people that in this nation consume drugs don't have access to them. Or, contrary and much better, to legalize. I think it should be legalized. Uh, the founding fathers of this nation used to say that governments do not have the authority and the right to intervene in our own conscience and in our own behavior. And this is intervening in our own behavior. Most prohibitions have been eradicated. Abortion, marriage between persons of the same sex, cigarettes, which are much more harmful than marijuana, alcohol, which kills much more people than drugs, and all of those prohibitions now do not exist. I think pretty soon public opinion, uh, being ahead of government, will be totally in favor of legalizing. The last Gallup poll in the United States, national poll, shows that 50% of U.S. citizens are in favor of legalizing. But government is not. And look at the roots of this, the origin of this. It's a religious origin like a dogma, prohibited drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, everything. And uh, it's not working anymore. So we need to think different and, uh, and move ahead to legalize. The, the other event since you wrote your book it was the, the financial crisis, which called into question uh, uh, the whole notion of globalization that's unregulated. In, in your book, you had written before the 2008 crisis, you had written uh, looking at Europe as a positive model for a, a common market uh, which grows out of the success of NAFTA and, and why it might even extend to South America. So how do you see the future now in terms of creating a, uh, an American counterpoint to the Asian challenge by growing our market, pulling the walls down, educating our people, uh, understanding that it's not migration, that it is migration and not immigration as people can move across the borders? Well, uh, number one, Europe. Europe is undergoing a crisis right now. But still, Europe is the wealthiest, and I repeat, the wealthiest uh, sum of nations in the world. 
the wealthiest region, but more so is the better distributed income worldwide. The gap between those who have and do not have in Europe is like this. The gap between those who have in the United States and those who don't have in the United <laughs> States is like this. Mm -hmm. So they have shown the world that you can distribute income, that you can live in a society that is cohesive and that has a high standard of living. And still they do have, although they are going through a crisis. I know leadership in Europe will come about to make sure that they will come back, mm -hmm. like uh, Churchill predicted, we shall come back, he said. And Europe will come back. So I'm, I'm, I'm not worried about that. On the other side, the real challenge now is on the East. It's on the growth of China and India and Asia. Pretty soon, Chinese economy is going to be larger than U.S. economy. And pretty soon, the center of gravitation of the world will be moved to the East. The financial markets, the uh, consumer market, the power markets, and we have to be very careful with that and think a lot about that because uh, the question is what are going to be the prevailing values uh, when the empire moves to the east instead of being on the west. I still think that we in North America, and I say we, including Mexico, have the capacity not only to keep being the strongest uh, and largest economy in the world, but to be also the leading part of the world uh, as long as we associate with Europe. I think the Western values will be well taken care of as long as Europe and United States work as partners that we were after the Second World War. And today there is a divide between the thinking in Europe and the thinking in the United States. I think we should come back to the times of De Gaulle, Churchill, uh, Roosevelt, and, uh, and the alliance that we conformed in the Western world that gave this world the best 30 years we ever had right after the war. And everybody benefited. And the democratic culture extended to all corners of the world, and the growth of economies and middle classes also extended to most parts of the world. We should come back to that. A theme that runs throughout your life, throughout your presidency, and even today, is education. That, that the, the distribution of resources, uh, in your case, you had the resources to, to be educated, but your, your compassion for others who need the resources so they can become educated, and which lifts up the whole uh, uh, society. Uh, and, and you now have a, the first uh, uh, presidential library outside the United States, which is actually a research center, where the hope is to continue the process uh, of education. So, so I, I, you, really, you really believe that this is a key component. And strangely enough, it goes with democracy, because you're the first president of Mexico who basically didn't leave the country uh, with a fortune to, uh, to no longer be part of the country that he led. Talk a little about that. Yeah. Well, well, education is the only way you can change a nation in one generation. Uh, education is the instrument for progress for distributing income, for ensuring opportunities, equal opportunities to everybody. And uh, I'm fully uh, committed with education since when I was a kid, I saw my kid friends uh, migrate to United States looking uh, for a job and for income. And uh, me, myself, I had a different fortune, a different blessing, which is uh, the capacity to go to school, to go to college, to go through university. And that makes all the difference in the world. My friends that came from the ranch are still here. 
I see them in LA, I see them in Chicago, I see them in DFW area, and uh, they done well, they survived, but they didn't have the fortune like I did, that by going to school, I could become president of a company, or I could become president of my nation, or I have had a happy life all along. So I'm, I'm one case that shows that education is what makes the difference. And this is why I'm so passionate. And I see that you give uh, the possibility of education to somebody and he will do the rest. One, uh, one final question, which is looking back uh, at your life, uh, what advice would you give to students to prepare for the future in a, in a globalized world where national identity is not going to go away, but you're going to have to be both a citizen of your country and a citizen of the world? Well, it's difficult to give advice, but let me tell you that we people have two uh, faces. One uh, has to do with what we learn throughout our lives, what we learn in the school, what we learn at home, what we learn in life. And the other one is something we have here within, which is passion, which is that power within, which is that conviction that we can do whatever we want. So please think big in your life have heroic purpose and aspirations. And you will begin to see how do you grow, how do you expand yourselves, how do you discover the capacities that we have that if we don't challenge ourselves, we never learn about. Be compassionate, think about your neighbor, think about the poor, think about those who didn't have the opportunity to be in a school like you are, on, on a school of excellence uh, because others don't have that opportunity. But through your work, through your leadership, you will bring about opportunities for all the rest of them. You will begin also your heart expanding in joy, in happiness, in self-realization. And that's what life is all about, to do things and to do things for others. Well, uh, Mr. President, let me show your book again because it's, it's a great read and uh, uh, an exciting uh, story. And I want to uh, thank you very much for giving us this opportunity for you to share uh, your intellectual odyssey with us. Thank you very All right. much. Thank you. Thank you Good very luck. much. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.